What's going on, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Along the Keel, a podcast dedicated to the brands that are being built outside. My name is Captain Zach, and in this week's episode, I had a talk with Tom Rowland, one of the founders of Waypoint TV, a lifetime guide, as well as a host of the Saltwater Experience, a TV show dedicated to fishing and an athlete. And the list kind of just keeps going. So you guys are going to have to tune into this episode to learn more about Tom and what Waypoint is doing to really change how we interact with the outdoors when it comes to content like documentaries, TV shows, and of course, podcasts. So with that, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the show. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. They go a very, very long way. And if you want to learn more, you can check us out on our website, alongthekeel.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter because we have some very interesting things that will be coming very, very soon. This summer, you're going to see some changes to Along the Keel. And the hint is in the intro. So with that, enjoy the show, and we'll catch you at the end. Yeah. How's it going, Tom? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, it was uh, it was cool being able to be on your podcast, and now we're doing a little swap. So it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on along the keel. Well, thank all you. About you know you and uh, yeah, absolutely, and and you know Waypoint and everything else you got going on because you know having been watching your stuff for oof, man a while now, and then getting the opportunity to become a part of Waypoint, and it's just been cool how it all comes back around, right? You never know who you're going to bump into and who you're going to talk to, but um you know, give us a quick rundown. Like who is Tom Roland? Mm. I don't know if there's a quick rundown to that. <laughs> um, basically I'm a fishing guide. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of who I am. Uh, somewhere along the way there, it has evolved and materialized into, into what seems like a lot more, but you know, when I, when I think about it, man, I'm just a fishing guide mm. and, um, you know, I have a lot of other interests and, and, and now some other businesses and stuff, but, and, and I don't really take people fishing like I used to, but I still <laughs> consider myself a fishing guy. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's what I do. That was my first job. And that was, that was, uh, well, not my first job. I've had some pretty crappy jobs, but, um, <laughs> that was kind of, you know, the way that I started to, uh, to build a career, even though a lot of people right. would, would continually ask me when I was going to get a real job. Um, yeah. I was happy with the job, but, um, so I was a, an outdoorsman as a kid. I mean, mm -hmm. my dad took me hunting and took me fishing and, um, I was very fortunate to, to be able to spend a lot of time outdoors with, with him. He gravitated a little more to the hunting and I, mm -hmm. I don't know why necessarily, but I like the fishing better. Mm -hmm. Um, and we fished pretty much everywhere we went. If we went on vacation, we tried to to fish in saltwater. If we went, uh, um, you know, somewhere we would try to fish in a lake or, or whatever. And, right. um, just, just was interested in it. And then I guess somewhere around 16, I got my driver's license and fishing wasn't as cool as it used to be and <laughs> faster boats and water skiing and girls were, were more, way more interesting. But, you know, I, I still like, did stuff outdoors. I still went camping. I still mm -hmm. like ran a trot line as a kid for catfish and, and, um, you know, would just mess around with it, but, but it definitely wasn't as cool. The girls didn't think it was as cool. So right. uh, I definitely right. took a back seat until I got to college and I felt a longing to like do that kind of stuff again. And, mm -hmm. um, that led me to my first 
my kind of my first job. I mean, I worked as a as a work I worked as a um, as a telemarketer kind of for Olin Did Mills really? Studios. Yeah, this is the worst <laughs> job wild. ever. Uh, Olin Mills, which you're probably way too young for Olin Mills, but there used to be a, a place where you'd go get your picture made. And it's mm-hmm. hard to even imagine that that would be an industry, but people didn't have nice cameras and they certainly didn't have lights and they, you know, so it was like a big thing. And they had these, these, and Olin Mills is from the, the town that I grew up in. There's actually a guy named Olin Mills. Mm. And, um, so when I was at college, I went to summer school my first year and, and my mom was like, well, if you need a job, you know, Olin Mills will hire you. And, right. uh, so I was like, okay, I'll take it. And we'd go into Owen Mills and you're in the back, you're in the back. They would take you through the studio where people were getting their picture made. And then there was a back room that had a bank of telephones and you had a script and you just worked off the script. They were one of the earliest, um, telemarketers. And, you know, I don't know if anybody was very good at it, but I, I was selling stuff. I was, I was selling really? stuff. Yeah, man, <laughs> I sold them. And, um, People would call and you would you would try to sell people like a, a an eight by ten photo of their family and you know it would come with this many wallet sizes and this many little little ones. I mean, it That's was a hard funny. sell. It was a hard sell. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, that was my that was my very first job. <laughs> the one that got me into the outdoors was a much better job. Even though I was scrubbing toilets, I was in Yellowstone National Park. And oh, man. I was a maid in Yellowstone National Park. And it was, it, I still say it's the best job I've ever had, even to today. Uh, I loved it. It was phenomenal. Yellowstone opened my eyes to so many different things. And and I had a tremendous amount of free time. They just said, mm-hmm. here, here's 16 rooms. Um, there's 16 yeah. rooms. You need to clean 16 rooms. And when you can do that, and there was an inspector that would go behind you. And when you could clean the 16 rooms and be inspected, they let you go. And I could do that by about 11 o'clock. And so then, you know, the Yellowstone River was just up the road. I would hitchhike to the, to the river and um, fish for the rest of the day. And uh, it, oh, was, it was awesome. And I loved, yeah. loved it, loved it, loved it. And it was, it was the first time that I'd seen Western trout fishing. It was the first time that I had really seen wildlife like that. I mean, bison and elk and grizzly bears and moose and seeing all this on a daily basis. I was, I was amazed. I mean, yeah. It was, it was the greatest thing ever. And I knew I got to have more of that. So the next year I thought I was going to go to Alaska and I told my dad I was going to Alaska and he was like, okay, cool. Um, huh. And you don't have a car. You don't know anyone in Alaska. What do you, what do you think you might do up there? And I was like, I'm going to work in a, in a fish cannery. Cause I heard that was a thing that you could do. Like that you could get a job at a fish yeah. cannery. And he was like, Oh, Okay. I mean, he's thinking, this is the worst idea I've ever heard, you know? And, and he was, he was kind enough (laughs) to, to steer me gently in a different direction, which turned out to be a guide school in Jackson, Wyoming. And, and I went to this Western rivers professional guide school. And, um, just like your story, you were saying you went to the captain's license class and the guy hired you right out of it that, Mm -hmm. that ran the school. And that's exactly what happened to me in the, in the guide school. I mean, I, I, I guess I did okay. And he thought yeah. I'd be a good hand, and he asked me if I would want to work for him. Actually, went from no guide to guide. Yeah, actually, he. I remember him bringing me into the to this room, his little office, and he was like, "I'm sending you up north to Montana." I was like, 
man. And <laughs> and I was so on the one hand, I'm really happy that I got an offer and I'm going to get to stay out there. But on the other hand, I really liked Jackson. I really liked these people. And I had met a friend there and he was really cool. And, and I was just about to walk out of that, that room. I mean, I was so close and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to say this. And I said, you know, Joe, I'd, I'd really, really like to stay here and work for you. Mm. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah, you know, I really like it here. And, I, I, I think I would really like to stay here if it's at all possible. And he goes, okay, I'll send the other guy up to Montana. You can stay here. And <laughs> I mean, it was no easy? big deal, but, yeah. but like as a young man, you know, like he's an authority figure and he's telling you right. what to do. And he was everything I could do to, to, to even utter a sound. Like right. I could have just taken it and gone. And if I had done that, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing here. Right. I, I, I really don't think that I would have been, and, and it kind of goes back to that moment a lot of times of standing up for yourself and, and, and at least letting someone else know that this is where you want to be. Right. right. And, and that was a great opportunity because I ended up working there for seven, seven summers. And, uh, that guy was a, a, a real mentor to me in his own way. And his dad, um, mm -hmm. started the Orvis endorsed guide program. His dad was a really, uh, yeah, he was a hardcore cowboy guy that, uh, Vern Bressler, he was, he was just a no nonsense, no bullshit kind of guy. Just, mm -hmm. this is the way it's done. If you do it any other way, you're out of here. And, uh, <laughs> Love that. you know, it was, it was just all about the customer and all about making sure that somebody had a really, really good time when they went fishing with you. And that's yeah. what it was all about. And not showing up looking slovenly. You looked professional and nice. And by all means, you looked like a cowboy. Um, right. he didn't care where you're from or what you were doing or really what you wore on the river. But when you showed up at the shop, you looked like a cowboy because these people <laughs> came to Jackson, That's Wyoming. Awesome. Yeah. And by God, they're going to have a cowboy as a guide. And I don't care if you're from Tennessee, you're going to look <laughs> like a cowboy. So whatever you got to do to look uh, like a cowboy, go buy some boots, buy some jeans, buy a button up shirt. I don't care if you wear the same one every single day, but it will be clean. And yeah. that's what you're going to wear when you show up at this shop. And if you show up at this shop any other way, it'll be the last day that you show up at the shop. And <laughs> yes, sir, that's awesome. understood. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you know, lessons like that, just about the importance of, of uh, professionalism, you know, in, in a, in a business that a lot of people mm -hmm. aren't that professional in sometimes right. takes you a long way. It really, mm -hmm. it really takes you a long way. And, and so anyway, that, yeah. that was, that was the beginning of it. Jackson, Wyoming, yeah. trout guide. You know, it's funny, like I've traveled, I've been fortunate to do some backpacking and horseback riding and some, you know, just spent a lot of time out West, you know, in Jackson, Montana, Glacier, just awesome backpacking trips. So hearing that is, is very reminiscent of my trips back there, you know, and having that that feeling of, you know, of being in Yellowstone and being out on the land and, and just, just an incredible experience. Right. And I know we talked about this earlier today was like what it feels like to be on Yellowstone and that feeling of, Oh man, like there's nothing better in the world, but I'm curious because I had a similar experience when I moved to Hawaii was, you know, when I worked for Sherry Cisco, the owner of Kona snorkel trips and um, the guys over at Kona Honu divers, 
I, I, being from the Northeast, right. And you being from Tennessee and going out to like this foreign place, right. Where the culture is different. Everything's different. I was getting yelled at cause I refuse to wear flip-flops. Like I just, <laughs> I, I just don't like wearing flip-flops. So I would wear my big extra tough boots everywhere, you know, just cause in the Northeast, that's, that's what you wear, you know? And, uh, you know, she would yell, she was like, Zach, you gotta, you gotta go buy flip-flops or I'm going to buy flip-flops for you. Cause you're, <laughs> you're tracking mud all over my boat. You're doing, I'm like, it's a, it's a boat, right? It's a work boat. I'm used to being like commercial side of things. Um, so when you were going through guide school, you know, similar to a captain school, what does that look like? Like, what does it mean to be a guide? Um, well at the time the guide school was in its infancy. So, mm. Um, it was a really good idea from a guy that, that, you know, didn't have a lot of formal education. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not, he, he didn't go, he didn't go to college. I know that he's a remarkable businessman that had remarkable, um, ideas. And one of his ideas was if I need some guides, maybe I should run a guide school and mm. that would be a great opportunity to see who's coming through, I can keep the ones I want. I can send the other ones to my friends. And they, you know, there was this sort of a endorsed guide program starting. And so the guide school looked like it was a river guide school. So the most mm. important thing for this school and the biggest um, part of it was learning how to row a boat safely, <laughs> learning how to handle a boat, learning how to anchor a boat, learning mm. how to navigate a, a drift boat down a river safely. And then the second most important thing would probably be to learn how to trailer that boat and back it down the ramp and, you know, stage at the, at the ramp and do all that stuff. And so those were the two biggest parts and, you know, rowing a, rowing a boat down a river, depending on the river, of course, it's not really that hard, but you can certainly get yourself in trouble. You can certainly turn it sideways in a rapid and, and swamp a, a hard-sided drift boat, and, and it's going under. Right. Um, so there was a lot of formal training in rowing. There was a lot of, um, which, which kind of then um, evolved into, now this is how you row for a fishing trip. Now you've made mm-hmm. it, you, you can navigate down this river safely, but you're two casts away from the bank. Like nobody's catching right. anything. So now, you know, here's where the fish are. Here's how you row the boat here. Here's how you hold the boat in certain places. And just mm-hmm. kind of the, uh, the nuances to, to the very early stages of, of being a professional guide. First of all, you're safe. Right. Secondly, you're somewhat productive. And third now is the, is the last part. And that's kind of entertaining the customers and showing professionalism throughout the day. From the way that you show up in the morning with your vehicle um, clean and your boat clean and the way that you put the boat in and what you do with the customers and, and where you stage them so that they're not going to wander off and fall in the river and, you know, or right. get run over by another guide coming in. It's like everything. There was a way to do everything. And yeah. And so we learned all that and what the best practices were like when you get out and you're, you know, how to anchor the boat so you don't turn around and the boat's gone. Cause that right. happens a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then there's like, you know, if you're, um, you know, you get your, your people out and you move them upstream and you're always staying downstream of them because what happens if somebody falls in the water, they're going to come downstream. So if you have someone right. 
downstream of you and you get spread out and somebody falls in the water and they take off they're gone well yeah. they're gone and um so that you know you're you're learning kind of things like that and and it's right. a week long school and you're not going to learn everything but you're going to be way better off than somebody who hasn't had any of that training right. and um and from that point you might be a candidate for kind of a bottom level guide position and that's exactly mm. what I got I got the bottom of the the bottom of the <laughs> bottom I I cooked I cleaned I changed wheel bearings occasionally I got to run a, a real trip yeah. um you know I, I ran shuttles I did everything and and that was a real gift for somebody that ended up in a business as a career because right I learned what each one of those people did and how mm -hmm. crucial it is to, to the success of a guide business. Like if your shuttle doesn't make it or it gets, or your truck gets shuttled to the wrong place, it ruins the whole mm -hmm. day. Like that's yeah. a whole day ruined. And um, so each one of those people is super important. And until you do each of those jobs, you don't, you don't really realize that. So the guide school right. is a great opportunity to kind of, get a very, very basic understanding of what you're about to get into mm -hmm. to qualify you for a bottom level opportunity. And if you work hard, you're going to be able to maybe, maybe by next year, you'll be a real guide. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's what happened to me. I mean, I did pretty much everything that, that they asked. And, um, you know, by the next year I was ready to, ready to start taking some trips. Yeah. But there's something to be said about that, you know, just working hard and, and doing all of the things that you don't necessarily want to do. Cause you, you look at a guide and it takes a while to become that expert guide, but you got to learn all these things prior for you to kind of earn your spot or at least an opportunity to be in your spot. And, you know, I, you know, I kind of look at the, how I kind of came up as a captain and where I am now in a, in a similar way. Like I've worked in a boatyard. I've, been a, I've been the guy at the pump out dock getting covered in shit, you know, from someone messing up at the pump out dock and sanding boat bottoms and all this other stuff that it takes that, you now know, you have a, you have an all encompassing view on the industry itself as a whole, which in turn is going to help you out down the road. Yeah. But what I did find interesting is, you know, you use a term that I use a lot too, is, you know, thirdly, you're an entertainer, right? And as a guide and as someone who's taught boating and all these other different things, and there's a lot of nuances to learn, but out of all those, I think the most important part is being that entertainment factor, right? Because that person came to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to fish with your outfitter and to fish with Tom Rowland. They didn't go to the guy next door, right? So it would almost be a disservice if you didn't show up professionally and you didn't provide them with the best trip because they're spending all this time and money that they've worked hard for to then go and spend it on a probably a pretty expensive trip, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not cheap out there. No, it's not cheap. And, and you're exactly right. But you're looking at it from a, from a place of, of having done it. And so now, you know, the, the, the primary objective is entertainment, right? Mm. But that's only the primary objective after all of the other things are just like memorized and wrote. Like, right. you're perfectly safe. That's the most important. Like, I don't care how good a time you have. If somebody gets nine stitches, it's not, you know, that's not a great day. Like, right. you know what I mean? Or, got a or somebody gets a hook in their eye or, or yeah. you know, gets run over by a, by a trailer or gets attacked by a moose or, 
any kind of thing like that. So that's a new one. <laughs> the absolute number one thing is is safety, and and yeah. and then later, somewhere down the line, that becomes just like that's just your mode of operation, and nobody's mm-hmm. you're not going to operate any way other than perfectly safe, and right. um, and then it becomes entertainment, and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, different ways that you can kind of kind of uh, grade a guide. And, you know, a lot of people will think, well, it's a matter of how many tournaments you win or it's, uh, it's you know, how many fish you catch or it's who, who, you know, back in the days when everything would be on the nail, you know, it's wh- whoever mm-hmm. has the most impressive board. But that's not it at all. And, and what I learned, you know, from the guide school and from the people I was around out west and then again, you know, I... I, I reinvented my whole guide career in, in saltwater in Key West later. Mm-hmm. And I was around some really amazing uh, individuals there. And what, what became pretty obvious is that those things are important, but, but guiding is like a, it's like an art form. And, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for fishing guides and, and um, people that, that do that business because, because it's a hard business. If you do it right, it's a wonderful business and it can treat you incredibly well. And it treated me mm-hmm. really, really well, but you got to be professional about it. And, and the most important thing is that you are an, an entertainer, like you said, mm-hmm. and that, you know, you might go out there and you don't crush the fish every single day. Some days you do. And some days the fishing is amazing, but the person that you have Mm-hmm. is not capable of doing what it takes to catch those fish. It can be a horribly frustrating experience, or you can somehow turn this all around and that mm-hmm. person can have the best day they've ever had on the water, right. off the water, whatever. This was the most fun day I've ever had, and I definitely want to come back and do it again. Regardless yeah. of if I caught one fish or 20 fish or 200 fish or I set some kind of record or or whatever. So you're going to yep. have the really expert fishermen that are going to catch a hundred fish on that same day. And then you're going to have this other person that's going to catch their very first fish and their only fish on that first day. And both people with a, with a guide that is, is operating to where they're, they're looking at guiding an individual as an art form. Mm. Both of those parties are going to come away having the most wonderful day. Right. And, and, and really realizing, you know what? It was that guy that was sitting in the middle of the boat that really made it fun. Yeah. We really had a good time and we're coming back. And right. so, it, you know, I grade a guide by his return clientele. Like mm-hmm. who, who comes back, who's booked up all the time, like right. all the time. You can't get a day with that guy. Well, there's a reason. And it's not because... He's catching the biggest and the most. He's going to end up catching the biggest and the most often because he's got the same customers over and over and over again. They're going to become a well-oiled machine and a good team. And that's going to result in catching a lot of fish. And the guy's out there all the time. He's going to find out where the big fish are and he's going to, he's going to have, you know, strategies of how to get them and and all that secondary. But what's most important is that everybody that goes with him or her loves them. And they're going to return, and that makes that makes it all better. I mean, and you know, I, I was fortunate like that. That's that's what that's what the guide school 
kind of taught me. And then, you know, what we would do is, uh, you know, the guy that ran the school, you know, the year after I was in the guide school, I was one of the instructors. Now I wasn't a, a, a lead instructor, mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, help with, you know, how to row the boats or help with, right. you know, something. And then yeah, you know, sure. the next year, maybe I'd have a, a higher role. And the next year I'd have a higher role until you're a lead instructor. And like you're, you're teaching people how to do what at one point, just a few years ago, you had no idea what you were doing. Right. And that gives you real ownership in it. And then, you know, like, it, mm-hmm. like anybody ever says for teachers, like the, the way that you really learn something is you teach it to others. And, and yep. so for that reason, like, this guide school concept this guy came up with was just genius because he ended up with some of the best guides. Some people that are still in the business went through that same guide school that I did. Lots of people that are mm-hmm. in the business um, that are career guides started like that, surrounded themselves with the same kind of people and took that professionalism yeah. into their career. Other people took that professionalism into a different career, um, you know, as a salesman or something else but it all, right. it's all kind of the same. Like yeah. if you're a salesman, you know, it's one thing yeah, if you be... just sell the stuff. It's another thing if people love dealing with you. Yeah. You know, you got to sell yourself. That's the best salesman right yeah. there. Yeah. You know, it's not what you're selling. It's, it's who it's you as a person that you're trying to get them just to become likable. And as a guide and as someone who's taking people out, if, if you're not likable, you're not going to be successful, you know? And, but you bring up this interesting point of, you know, different careers and how guiding then transitions you into other, you know, elements of life. Now, you know, you then coming from the West and I know you still travel out there, but you're now you're in the keys, right? Mm -hmm. At what point did you start to make that transition into this idea of, all right, well, I have all this knowledge. I have all this expertise and I kind of want to share that in the form of the saltwater experience and waypoint TV Mm. and really getting into the media side of things. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was a a period, a pretty good period before that where I didn't have all that experience and stuff, but I tried to spend a winter in Jackson hole and it was 30 Mm. below. And I decided, man, I don't know that I'm capable of spending a winter out here. Plus (laughs) you can't fish anywhere. It's freezing cold. So I didn't make it, um, which was one of the best failures of my life because I went to Key West and, and, uh, well, first tried to, to, um, get a job. There was some sort of strange connection between little Cayman Island and the, the fishing guides of Jackson, Wyoming. And mm. I don't know why maybe the owner went out to Jackson, the owner of this little place in little Cayman went out to Jackson or something, but there was some sort of connection. A lot of fishing guides work down there in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. I talked to my boss the guy that ran this guide school. And I was like, man, I, I just want to fish all year long. I, I don't think I can stay here. And he's like, okay, well, you can go to Cayman. You know, you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, I'll go check it out, you know? And, and I was getting yeah. pretty close to, to, to deciding that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with this young lady that I was seeing, which I'm still mm-hmm. seeing to this day, 25 years later. Oh, worked out. Married nice. 25 years. This is like 30 <laughs> yeah. years ago. And so I was like, yeah, well, we'll go down there and check it out, you know? And so we go down there and this was not going to work. It was, it Mm. was not, it was very rustic. Little Cayman had um, like 10 people living there. Um, There was one little, little dive slash fishing joint going on there. And it just, it was very rural. Now my wife had spent a lot of time on Grand Cayman. That's where their, that's where her family went to vacation 
and they dove and they, you know, she loved Grand Cayman, but Little Cayman was a whole different mm-hmm. deal. So we decided we weren't going to do that. On the way back, we, we uh, visited Key West for the first time and went fishing with a friend of mine down there that had, that had um, come out to see us out west. So we kind of traded out a trip. And I was just like, what is wrong with this place? Like, this place right. is amazing. This is where we're going to be. This is where I'm going to be. It's in the United States. It's amazing. Like, it seems like there's tons of tourists down here. Mm-hmm. Might be a good opportunity. So anyway, that's how that's how I made that happen. And um, from, thanks to Simon Becker and, and Michael Pollack, who helped me get started down there. And then, you know, my wife and I were going to get married. And, and she said, we can live in Jackson or we can live in Key West, you know, whichever one you want. And, mm-hmm. but let's live in one, not, not this vagabond <laughs> lifestyle. You Back know, and forth into then, that. Yeah. So Key West was the obvious choice because I could fish there year round. And even though I didn't yeah. have the business and I was just getting started that there was so much more potential there. Um, mm. So that's where that got started. And, uh, you know, four or five years into it, I'm, I'm starting to kind of get the handle hang of it and kind of getting a little bit better, but still, I, I mean, I felt like, I felt like the greenest person that had ever set foot on Key West. I mean, I didn't know anything. And so because of that, I worked really, really hard and I tried to learn as much as possible. And I would stay out there for 12 hours and everybody else is staying out there for eight hours. And, um, you know, after you do that, you know, 300 days a year, those four extra hours start to add up. And, you know, pretty soon you've been out there a year longer than, then, you know, whatever your, your current days are, you know, like I mean, right. you're, you're out there an extra half day every day. So you're out there basically an extra 150 days. If you're fishing 300 days a year, all that yeah. started to add up, but I didn't, I didn't realize that or understand that. So my knowledge was increasing, but I still felt like I was just the, the rankest amateur ever. And I was getting some trips <laughs> and I was catching a few fish here and there, but I just, you know, mm-hmm. I, the people that I'm surrounded by, you know, are second generation guides, third generation guides. They're, they they grew up there. They know, they seem to know everything. And uh, right. I don't know. At some point I entered a tournament and I thought, man, I, I don't want to enter this tournament. I'm going to come in last place. It's going to be terrible. And somehow I entered it and, you know, lo and behold, we won the thing. Like, what? How is that <laughs> even possible? I got any think that was possible. And, um, you know, I, somewhere along the line, I learned a couple of things and I, I liked the tournaments and, and it was, it was very similar to kind of the same feeling I had as a, as a high school wrestler. Like there was this competition, mm-hmm. there was this training, there was this lead up, there was all this pre-fishing, which was just like, just like the same kind of feelings. And, and I was right. like, I want to do this more. And so, you know, the second tournament didn't go as well as the first and, you get a slice of humble pie and you, you know, you now, now you realize, well, maybe I don't know anything. Maybe I did get lucky in that first one, but mm-hmm. at least I'm kind of on the right track and being in those tournaments, you're, you're, you're surrounded by the best guides and the best fishermen and you're seeing what they do and you're seeing like, that's where the, the, the acceleration of knowledge really, really happens. It's not unlike right. you going to a powerlifting meet or, or an Olympic lifting Yeah, meet, for sure. You know, and all yep. of a sudden everything that you're kind of hearing about in the gym is now playing out in real life. And you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is like what I this thought is. I knew what I was doing, but that guy yeah. really knows what he's doing. And so, right. Anyway, 
the tournament started going well. I enjoyed them. I got some some opportunities to do more, and I started fishing tournaments as much as I could. Those were kind of uh, amateur level tournaments that were kind of mm-hmm. designed for um, uh, charities, and these charities like it's called the Redbone tournaments, and the Redbone tournaments they would raise money for cystic fibrosis, and they would have celebrities that would come down and fish and you could get your anglers to come in and fish. But basically there was no money exchanging hands. It was all right. for charity, but it really did a lot to either buoy your reputation or, you know, if you didn't catch much that could hurt your reputation. So the guides are mm-hmm. really, really trying really hard. And it's a very, very incredibly competitive uh, environment, even though it doesn't mean anything like right. you're not winning any money. But yeah, later, but it's a matter of who's who's going to be the best guy. Yes, yes, yeah. That's exactly what it is, and bragging rights, and you know the whole the whole deal. And and the funny funny thing was, I was thinking about this the other day, is that if you won one of those things, maybe you know those little circle of people that were in that tournament would know about it. But mm-hmm. this was way before social media, and way before websites, and way before the internet. And so they would print this magazine, like the Redbone Journal. And that might come out six or eight months later, and it would have this recap story of that tournament. So you wouldn't really see anything happen for another six months or a year, right. because then that magazine has to cir- circulate, you know. And then people yeah. would read it. And they're like, "Hey, you're you're the guy that did well in that tournament, um, you know, last year." I'm like, well, yeah, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> like, right? Yeah, this was two yeah, years finally. ago. Finally, yeah, two years ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but things just moved a lot slower, <laughs> a lot slower yeah. back then. But the you know those tournaments kind of led me to to be like, well, what's next? And there was something on the horizon called the uh, the IFA Redfish tournaments, and they, these were okay. money tournaments, and these were basically like bass fishing tournaments, except it was a two man team. Mm-hmm. And unlike bass fishing tournaments, they didn't, it, it had some money that seemed like a lot to us, but in, in terms of like bass fishing, it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, those guys making okay. you know, 300 grand, a million bucks, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you might win 20 grand at one of these things and then you need to split it between two people. So, you know, if I were to look at right. those tournaments today, I would think, what a waste of time. There's no way I'm going to do that. But as a young, <laughs> as a young yeah. guy, I'm like, man, that we have to do that. And so 20, 20 K we can, yeah. we can buy some new stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so that's where I, I, I started my partnership with my, my partner, Rich Tudor, um, mm-hmm. because he was, he was doing really well in the Florida Keys tournaments. We teamed up, we started doing these tournaments. The first couple we did really well in. Then we didn't do so well in some of them, and and you would move around like they'd be in Texas, they'd be in Louisiana, they'd be in Florida, and if they were in a in a place that was similar to the type of fishing that we were doing, like sight fishing and looking for mm-hmm. schools and stuff, we'd do pretty well. But then you put us in Texas, and we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, the, the, it was <laughs> it was really hard, and and we would you know there'd be sixty five teams, one hundred twenty teams, something like that. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'd come in last place, and um, Anyway, we we were doing pretty well in that uh, because you'd score points, and there was like a, a you know a team of the year. That's what we were after because it was hard to win sure. a single tournament, but we we managed to win some and 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 do pretty well. Um, but it was hard to make any money at it because the expenses were high, 
and we were splitting it between two people and there wasn't a lot of money to be offered anyway. So right. that was kind of a short term kind of thing. We were in Louisiana. Cheap. No, we we're in Louisiana. <laughs> my, my wife and two baby boys are in Key West. Hurricane um, Charlie comes over the Keys right over the top of Key West. I'm stuck in Louisiana. I can't mm. get out. My wife can't get out. So they have to weather the storm um, by themselves in Key West. And I, it, it, it tore me to shreds. I could not, I mean, even today thinking about that, I'm like, man, that's like literally probably the worst day of my life. And I just yeah. told Rich, I'm like, dude, I am so done with this. Like I will never do this again. He didn't have kids at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? She's fine. Like everything's fine. I'm like, hey, dude, you don't understand. You don't have kids. My kids yeah. are there. We're leaving. Like as soon as we get off the water today, we're putting the boat on the trailer. We're not changing clothes. We're not doing anything. We are driving to Key West. And uh, he's like, okay. You know, so we did that. Like wearing our tournament jerseys <laughs> yeah. all the way back home. And uh, along the way, you know, he started asking, like, yeah, we're doing pretty good. We got some sponsorship here. You know, there's a lot of things going on. Like, how do we keep this going? I'm yeah. like, I don't, I don't care. I'm out. Like, you can have it. I don't, I don't care. I'm out. And he kept asking questions like, oh, you know, it seems like we're doing, it seems like, isn't there anything right. we can do? And I had done this thing a year before. It was called the ESPN Great Outdoor Games. It was a fly fishing competition in New York, and I won that thing. And and it was kind of a big deal, I guess. And and it was on like mm-hmm. ESPN and ABC. And, but the big deal about it was that a saltwater fisherman had won this international trout fishing competition. And it was kind of an unlikely story. So I win the thing hmm. and I get back to Key West and I'm waiting for anything to happen and nobody's calling. And this, this guy gave me some good advice. He's like, Oh man, nothing's going to happen unless you make it happen. Really? Yeah. It seems like I won this big thing. Like people would be calling that stuff would be happening. Nothing happened. Right. And it was a really good lesson because I started getting on the phone. Like, again, this is before email, before internet, I don't even know how I track these people down, but I would somehow write letters to television producers. And I would say, Hey, look, you got this show. Um, I see it on ESPN or I see it on OLN or whatever. And you know, here's a story. Um, a saltwater fisherman wins this trout fishing competition. Maybe you guys mm-hmm. want to come down and go tarpon fishing with me. We'll do a show. And almost everyone I pitched came down and did it. So I did like 30 shows. Really? Holy yeah. Crap. Like it was, it was great. And, and, Business was booming and things were great, but yeah. I didn't think anything of it. Like I didn't think that that was any sort of career opportunity or whatever. Other people right. had shows. I didn't have a show. Like I don't know anything about TV. So Rich kept asking. He's like, "Well, what do you know about doing TV?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't." I mean, I said, "I guess we could have a TV show." He's like, "Well, what do you know about doing that?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I've done like thirty of them, but right. it doesn't look that hard to me." And you know, I was pretty naive. <laughs> it, it didn't <laughs> they got look that cameras hard. and stuff. It didn't look that hard. And I didn't yeah. know what, what all went into it, but, um, I had a, I had a person I could call Shaw Grigsby. He's a bass fisherman and his show was the first one I was ever on. And, and he was super nice and he was a great mentor. And he said, Hey, you, you know, this is what you need to do. You need to film a pilot. You need to, um, present it to the network and then, you know, see what happens and, you know, yeah. go sell, go sell it to sponsors and all that stuff. So we were like, okay, so what we're going to do. He says, well, you can use my crew. And so he, he let me pay his crew to shoot this pilot for us. And 
Wow. It was terrible. Awesome. It was the worst pilot you've ever seen in your life. Uh, <laughs> it was I'm so saying, bad. It's oh, awesome. <laughs> it was so bad that the network yeah. wouldn't even let us put it on TV. Like it, really? that we were rejected from the network. And, uh, but we weren't rejected from our sponsors. The sponsors thought it was great. And, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, that's how saltwater experience started. And, um, you know, fine. We went back to the drawing board. We tightened up the edit a little bit. We paid a little more money. We shot a little more stuff. Sure. And then, you know, sooner or later it was, it was good enough to get on TV, I guess. Um, right. we got it on TV one way or another. And, uh, that's, that's been like 17 years and, and saltwater experiences has, uh, continued to improve, thankfully. Um, yeah. and the production quality has gotten better since the very beginning. And we've been able to keep it on the air. Yeah. It's been pretty wild. I mean, you've been around, you've been doing this for, for a long time and saltwater experience been 17 years. And then you have another show, um, which the name of it is fleeting, but that's been on, the, the, on the air for end of the blue. That's for on for 14 years. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you've done other smaller TV shows like uh, Fitter.tv, which, you know, fitness being truth. a weightlift fitness truth. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, being a weightlifter and someone that's in that sport, that's kind of it. It's it was funny that I got to see some of the videos and I didn't even know who you were at the time. This was like <laughs> 10 years ago. And I'm watching Rich Froning and you, you know, talking to them. And for those that are listening that, you know, this is mostly a, a podcast about brands and companies and the ocean. But Rich Froning is a high level CrossFit athlete, probably in arguably one of the best in the world. Um, Certainly one of the best, too. Certainly. Oh, I mean, there's 100%. only two two guys that that, that that could even be in that conversation. Easily. Yeah, you know, Matt Rich Fraser. Froning. But at the time, you know, the time I was doing that, Rich was the man. And, and yeah. it was cool to, to get to know him and, and do some stuff with him. And, and um, that, was, that was super cool. Um, that, yeah. that show lasted a couple of years. It was about the underground kind of beginnings of the CrossFit movement. And then once it kind of hit mm-hmm. mainstream... Uh, you know, a show about a bunch of guys working out in a garage wasn't as, as interesting as, as it was the, when nobody had ever seen anything like that. Um, mm, right. And so that, what, that what I, what I did away. feel, yeah, you know what though? It reminded me a lot about pumping iron, you know, yeah. and the storing the story behind how that got started and how it was very much. So this film crew going into these grungy, dirty gyms or like the, the back street, you know, yeah. I watched the one on Rob Orlando um, you know, it's just in a random garage in Connecticut, right? right. Like an old warehouse. And, you know, here you are kind of getting the backstory, which was, you know, really interesting at the time as I was just kind of coming up and getting into this whole thing. Um, but what I really found interesting is how you kind of, you mix the two really well, right? Cause you know, being a guide is you're outside all the time. You're, you're moving around constantly and you have to be in shape. Right. So you kind of have this great balance between the two. And I'm just curious as to how you kind of went about doing that, because as someone who's interested in both things, it's like, man, that seems like you have an awesome job. You're able to just balance the two and it seems really fun. Well, the fitness thing all happened because um, I was a wrestler in high school. I stayed in good shape. And then then when I went to college, I I ate and drank everything in sight and uh, gained about 50 pounds and was pretty out of shape when I first started my, um, my, my freshwater career. I had a back injury early that mm-hmm. I never had a back injury. I was like, what in the world is going on? I can't even move. This is horrible. Somebody told me I should go to a chiropractor. So I, I 
I've never been to a chiropractor. I, I get kind of fixed up and, and stuff, but that was the, the very first kind of precursor, kind of like, man, you should be taking better care of yourself. Like you, this has mm. never happened before. You're fat, you're out of shape. You're, you're trying to do things that are physical, but you don't realize they're physical. You know, drinking a lot of beer at night and eating anything and everything I want to, because, you know, since I was right. in kindergarten, you're watching your weight. Like I, I, I never ate a full Thanksgiving dinner my whole life until I was decided I wasn't going to wrestle in college anymore. Like, you know, the, the, the pigging right. out on Thanksgiving, a wrestler does not get to partake in that. I mean, you get two pounds No, like, <laughs> like, and you're already, you know, right. really, really, really cutting weight. And so, you know, you're, you're like, right. I don't have two pieces of Turkey and a, a half a roll you know, and, and a glass of water. Yeah, a couple People of are looking at you like, what in the <laughs> world? What a freaky kid you have. Um, but that's, that's just kind right. of the life. So once you, when you get to a place that nobody's looking and there's no reason you got to make weight or anything, it's pretty easy for wrestlers to go overboard. And I was certainly not the only one. Yeah. I mean, I met, I, I met up with people. I meet them today. I'm like, holy cow, you used to weigh 112 pounds and now you are 260. Like what happened? How? Right. And they just started eating and never stopped. And um, yeah. it's a very easy thing to do. But anyway, um, when I went to Key West, man, I couldn't keep up with anybody down there. I, I couldn't, I'd, I'd go for three or four days. I'd be wiped out, exhausted, and they'd, they'd still be able to go six or seven days without mm -hmm. a day off. Um, but they were, they were kind of on that six, seven day kind of deal and um just started taking better care of myself drinking more water staying out of the sun covering up and now i could go mm -hmm. five days you know but i'd still have to take a day off and when i on that day off i'd be wiped right. out like so tired so i started running lost a bunch of weight and then i could go 20 days then i got stronger would run right. more watch my diet sleep better now i could go 30 days or 40 days. And so it was this one-to-one -one mm -hmm. relationship of the better, you know, it was like being a professional athlete, like the better I am, the more money right. I make. It's that simple. And Key West yep. is a really, really expensive place to live anyway. My wife and I are trying to have kids down there. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, it's really hard. I, there, there are no days that I can take off. And I ended up working like over 300 right. days a year for probably 10 or 12 years in a row. Um, and the only way I was able to do that was by staying in really good shape. And uh, yeah. at one point, I think I did 175 days in a row. And and that was all. Wow. I mean, it was this one-to-one -one relationship with fitness and and health. And, mm -hmm. and it was fortunate because, you know, I, I like that kind of stuff anyway. Um, and I, I kind of regained a, a love for training and mm -hmm. being in, in good condition. But it was this, honestly, it was, it was a very selfish kind of thing. Like I can't do what I want to do. I have these goals set forth that I want to do so many trips or I want to be able to support my family down here. I right. can't do that unless I am in really, really good shape. Mm -hmm. And you know, that that's, that's how it happened. And then I got to where I really liked it so much and you get, a little bit of, of freedom, a little bit of space between you and the fishing or whatever. And it kind of opens up right. this opportunity to do a TV show about, you know, what you're doing in your garage. And right. some, some people found it interesting, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, you know, that's, no, that's, for sure. that's it. You know, 
It's that relationship. You know, you, you bring up that, the, the, uh, the selfish, you know, endeavor, right. And I've always thought about it in a very similar light because that's exactly what it is, right. By you going and lifting, you're not benefiting anyone else, you know, directly other than yourself, you know, but indirectly you benefit so many other people. Yeah. I've had I've had to wrestle with that a lot. That saying that question that you have, and, and I know you're a lot younger than me. And when you really Mm. start to wrestle with that question is when you have kids and when Mm. the kids are really young and here you are getting ready to go out on an hour long run, or you're going to go lift weights for an hour and an hour is a lot of time when you have little kids. And so I wrestled with that and my wife wrestled with that. And we all wrestled with that as a family of like, mm. what are you doing and how is this benefiting the family? And, and I, 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 I really came to terms with that and talked to my wife a lot about it. And I'm like, look, first of all, I can't provide for this family the way we need to, unless I'm in really good mm-hmm. shape. She understood that part. But right. then there's like, but now it's Saturday and you're going out running and you're training for a marathon. Like, why are you doing these things? And she just needed to understand. And I said, okay, you know, mm-hmm. I really had to put some serious thought into it of, of why am I doing that? And part of it was that I wanted to right. lead by example for my children I wanted to be in good shape, show them what that was, show them that it doesn't have to be this drudgery that, that you just, you know, you have to work out now. It's like, no, it can be fun. We can do it together. But for me to be a strong provider of this family, this is one of the things that I have to do. And in order to do that, one of the things that made it really um, much more amicable around my house and, is, is that I said, okay, you know, I'm not going to get home from work and go run. I'm not going to get home from work and go to the gym. That is my family's time. So when can I do this? I can either do it after they go to bed or I can do it before anyone gets up. And so that's how my morning training started is, is that I'm not going to take away any time from the family and I'm going to find a time where it's my time. And if I've got to get up at four o'clock in the morning to do this and then fish all day and then spend the rest of the time with my family, then that's what I'm going to do. But the right. training is a non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. The spending time with family is a non-negotiable. How can those two live, you know, together yeah. in the same household Yeah, and everybody's yeah. happy? So where the, the training is an enhancement to your life. Right. Rather than something that's tearing your marriage apart and tearing your family mm-hmm. apart, which it can. It can sure. absolutely do that. You're spending too much time at the gym. You're spending too much time at the bar. You're spending too much right. time wherever. It doesn't matter where you're spending too much time or what that activity is. If that is a is a point of contention in your in your marriage and your family, it's mm-hmm. going to tear your relationship apart. Where you can you can do the same thing. And you can find a different time of the day and that can mm-hmm. be a complete enhancement to your life. And that's what yeah. it's been for me. And, and without the morning and coming to that realization of, of this isn't a selfish pursuit. In fact, I'm doing this for the family rather than right. I'm doing this for me. Now, mm-hmm. I happen to enjoy it like you. I yeah. do enjoy it. But that's also 
for the family. I have to be in a right. positive state of mind. I have to be fulfilled with my training. I have to be fulfilled in, in, in my stress reduction in order for me to do a good job on the water, in order for me to be a good dad at home, in order for me to be a good husband. I have mm-hmm. to have that. Those are things that I need in my life. Now, right. where that fits in, I don't have to do it at five o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do it when my kid is at his first wrestling match. I don't have to do it when my daughter has her first, you know, dance recital or, or soccer right. game. Like it's just a matter of, of, of prioritizing like when, and you know, right. a lot of times that means you got to get up super dark early in the morning. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's funny you bring that up. So my time spent in Hawaii, I sat down because Hawaii, like the keys is expensive, right? Um, no matter what you do now, fortunately I don't drink milk, but they say milk is, it is like $4 a gallon over there, which it is, you know, I mean, gas is no more is no cheaper than three fifteen a gallon, you know? So it, it, life over there is, is inherently in, in, is expensive because you're on an Island, right? Similar to the keys. And, you know, one of the things that I set out to do is like, all right, well, if I'm going to come here, I got to build my career, you know, I, I got to build my reputation. So I worked, you know, seven days a week, you know, I barely had a, I never had a day off. So when people ask like, Zach, how was your Hawaiian vacation? I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Good luck with that. Because that's very me. similar to the keys. I mean, people come to yeah. the keys and they work four jobs like yeah, th- just to stay there. Like it's right. a very expensive place. That's a very common place. kind of deal. Yeah. So when I was working, I, and fortunately the, the lady that I was working for, she was a marathon runner and a triathlete. So she kind of understood the mentality of being an athlete. And I told her, I go, Sherry. Um, and she was actually, she's been on the podcast before I go, Sherry, I will work for you seven days a week, all day, every day. If you give me two hours a day to go work out and go train. And she goes, all right, you have a deal. So we would, she would like, all right, Zach. So when are you training today? I'm like, I'm going to train at 6am. She goes, all right, I'll see you at eight. And, and that was the deal, you know? So it's a matter of like having a talk with the people around you and really saying, you know, I need this. Like, this is, this is my time. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be a very grumpy person for the rest of the yeah. day. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, and it's not going to be a sustainable kind of thing. And, and that's where, right. you know, when it comes to marriage, it, you know, that, that a lot of people, for whatever reason, I guess they know that I work out all the time or whatever. It's like, ask me some sort of advice. And that is the biggest piece of advice that I, that I give out to anybody that's look, looking to change their life or, or get in shape or do whatever. It's like, look, man, find something that you like to do. doesn't really matter what it is. Find something mm-hmm. that you like to do that you're moving and then find a time to do it, that it is going to be an enhancement of your life. Not, not something that's going to tear it apart. And right. You know, that's sustainable. The other way is not, you know, and, and right. golf is a lot that way sometimes. Like, you know, the unfortunate thing about golf is you're not going to be going out and playing golf at three 30 in the morning. Like <laughs> I get rested, but, um, yeah. you know, it, it takes a tremendous amount of time. That's why I don't play golf because it takes a, it takes yeah. a lot of time. And that time comes, you know, at a time when I could be spending time with my family. So I, I really don't want to do that. Yeah. I want to, I want to spend time with yeah. my family. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this other, not to, not to do a hard transition, but there's this other thing that you've created that, you know, along the keel is a part of, which is kind of revolution and revolutionizing the way people are being able to consume content 
in, with the outdoors in mind, you know, whether you're fishing, you're, you know, a backpacker, someone that does a lot of hunting, you know, Waypoint TV is kind of that one-stop shop, you know, with podcasts, guides, videos, like movies, the whole bit. So when you were kind of going through saltwater experience, you know, into the blue, uh, the fitness truth, and you make this transition into, all right, we got these things going, but how can we kind of bring this all together and make it a hub, if you will, for outdoor creators to have their content on it? Like how did Waypoint come together and, and what was the initial thought into getting into it? Well, um, I would like to say that that's how it happened, that I was really looking for a way to bring it all together, but that's not the way it happened really at all. The way it happened um, is... And it just wasn't me. Me and Rich uh, worked on this together. When we first started, at, at one point, we had a show on ESPN2 and OLN. ESPN2 would do about 350,000 people on a Saturday. OLN on that same Saturday would do about 250,000. So 600,000 people are watching our shows every Saturday. Yeah, wow. As, and this is before the internet, before really cable as we know it today, people had about 30, 30, 40 channels. Mm. So those particular channels really stood out. The ratings on those channels were better than anything anybody's getting today. And we were on both channels. So pretty much the agreements that we had with the sponsors and the, the, the understanding was all based on those numbers. And as cable companies started expanding their offering, and now people have 3000 channels on their TV and there were, um, you know, at one point there were no 24 uh, seven outdoor um, channels. Now there's mm -hmm. five, six, seven of them. So the ratings started going down on everything. And, and then, you know, fast forward a few years later, now you have the internet and then people are cutting the cord. And now people aren't watching like they used to watch. Maybe people are watching mm -hmm. just as much content, but they're doing it differently. And the ratings continue to go down. So we started to be on five networks. You know, we would have the show on, on um, everything. We were on NBC Sports. We're, you know, now we're on Discovery Channel. We're on yeah. every, every opportunity that we saw that would, would be a pretty good fit for our, our um, show and had other like shows around it was we were, certainly were looking at it and, and trying to, and, and it just got crazy. I mean, we were on like seven networks at one point and, and all to kind of wow. catch these diminishing views. And so it became really super obvious that where, where all these people are going is, is to digital in some way, shape or form. Like mm. some, some ways that's YouTube, some ways that's, that's uh, you know, Vimeo or, or other places that you could go, but there wasn't like a place where you could, you could really get a lot of outdoor content. And so I was building out channels on everything that I could possibly think of. And, and I remember mm. I was trying to build a Roku channel on my little computer. I don't know mm -hmm. anything about building a Roku channel and I'm trying to fill, <laughs> build this thing out and, you know, we're going to upload our stuff. And one of the sponsors was like, Hey, you know, you've been doing a lot of these other platforms. How's everything going? And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll check out and see how many views we're getting and I'll, I'll get back to you. Well, it took like a week to, to log into this one. You forget the password over here. You log into yeah. this one. You, you're adding them all up. And now they've all changed. And so 
long story short, like it took like a week and three people to come up with some total of the views that we're getting on all these different platforms. So the first thought was, let's come up with a place where we could have one upload and we could have a dashboard. And this one upload would go to all these different places. And uh, we'll have a dashboard to where we can see how many people are watching it. That was, that was, that was the beginning of Waypoint. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. that sounds cool. And how, what would that look like? Oh, it'd be an app and it'd be a website. And that was, that's how it started. And, um, you know, it, it has just grown and evolved and materialized to where now, now Waypoint is like a, it's a digital network. So everything that was once radio mm-hmm. is now podcasts. Everything that was once magazines and newspapers is now online blogs. Everything that was once regular conventional cable television is now streaming in some way or, or shape mm-hmm. or form. And then there's even new stuff like OTT platforms and Samsung Plus TV and right. Pluto and Zumo and 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 a zillion others that some people have heard of, some mm-hmm. people use every day. But the fact is, is that a lot of that stuff is free. And when people cut the cable, they're going to one of these different places. So now Waypoint has grown into this right. wherever, wherever anyone is, they will be able to find our content. And the numbers are staggering. Mm. Like... We're on Discovery Channel, but we did four times better on Waypoint than we did on Discovery Channel. And, you know, that is... Really? Yeah. That's wow. that's a really big deal. That's a tough because, because we were waiting. Like, like there's like a seesaw. And we're, we're thinking that there would be like this time where, where digital would start to catch up to regular TV. And then, and then there would be a time where it was kind of the same, mm-hmm. you know, for a while. And, and then maybe it would just tip and slowly go. And it... It has kind of stayed like, like conventional TV is like where all the views are, and then all of a sudden it just went bonk, you know, and and yeah. now it's all digital. Now conventional TV is still very, um, very interesting and very attractive, and a lot of people still watch conventional TV. But you know mm-hmm. where the comparison is that not a lot of people are watching it compared to what it was in like 1985 when right. when. Like that's all there was to do. There was no internet. There were barely any video games. Like people watch TV and right. you would get 700,000 people watching like just a fishing show or a yeah. million people watching a fishing show. Like Bill Dance and Shaw Grigsby, when they were on TNN, mm-hmm. their ratings were unbelievable. And it was basically because there was nothing else on. And so, right. Anyway, that's all changed. And so the the, the, yeah. the landscape is, is totally, totally different today. Yeah. Now, do you see this landscape? I mean, obviously, it's ever evolving, right? I mean, anyone could anyone could pick up a mic at, on Amazon and start a podcast like I did a year ago, you know, and, and have this ability, which is honestly, it's pretty cool to see that you can be essentially someone that has an interest in something and then all of a sudden get affiliated with, you know, a company like Waypoint you know, and have your stuff out into a you know, position where there could be, you know, hundreds of thousands of downloads or watches or views or listens, what have you. But this concept of OTT is, is pretty revolutionizing. And what are you kind of seeing it do for the fishing and boating and outdoor world? Like, where do you kind of see, how, how do you see it having an effect? Well, there's been a lot of changes, um, you know, not just in the distribution and all of that that you just mentioned, but also, I mean, when we first started shooting a TV show, we had to, we couldn't even buy the camera. We had to rent a camera and the camera was like $150,000. And 
That's <laughs> like it was it was out of everything about TV was out of reach for the regular person. And we were a regular right. person, but we got a little bit of insight to understand how you bring your sponsors together. You can get this equipment. You can do these things. You can rent these cameras. That has all changed. I mean, sitting on this table, I have more technology than a, an entire production truck at, mm-hmm. you know, back in those days. And, and so, I mean, you could film a better show with your iPhone now than we could on our, for our pilot. And so yeah. everyone has much better technology at their fingertips. It's cheaper. A GoPro 8 or whatever generation they're on right now does slow-mo and, and it's got HD video and it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and it's you can wild. fly it around on a helicopter if you want to. Like there is so mm-hmm. much difference. Like the helicopter for, it's interesting. Uh, we used to rent a helicopter for an hour for $5,000. <laughs> we had to rent a helicopter for an Jesus hour. We had all Christ. of our boats staged in, in, so, so we had our offshore show. They were in the 36. We were in the skiff. We would take off in the skiff and then turn around. The helicopter would leave us and then go watch the, the 36 run. Meanwhile, we're getting in the bay boat. Really? And by the time the, the thing comes back, we go hauling ass away in a, in a, <laughs> in a bay boat watching the clock all the time. Cause it's like, man, we've only got an hour. Like how many shots can right. we get? Can you run out to the, to the lighthouse? You know, all of that was happening and we were having to, to do all of that with, with a real helicopter. Like, right. <laughs> it's just amazing. And now every kid gets a drone for Christmas that can do a hundred times better than that helicopter. So right. all of the technology has changed. Everything's gotten cheaper. It's gotten way more available. It's easier to mm-hmm. use. All of that has happened and the distribution has all changed. So right. no longer is anything out of reach. You can, you could, Film a TV show on your phone. You can make a podcast on your phone. You don't even need a microphone. Mm-hmm. You could you could do it. So the difference yeah. the difference is that how do you differentiate your content from someone else's? How do you get people to see it? Because like I I read something recently about podcasts that like the the average um, the average podcast gets like a hundred listens. That's it, mm-hmm. and and you know there's like millions of them and millions more coming online every single day. So, you know, you have the outlier and it's like to be in the top 1%, you need like, you know, 4,000 listens per episode. Okay. So you're in the top 1%, mm-hmm. but then compare that to like a Joe Rogan that's getting 30 million. Like there's a big difference in that 1%, right. like a huge, huge difference. Yeah. And even if you're at 3,500 per episode, I mean, that's not a really, that's not a big reach compared to like television or something like that, which would be 600,000, 800,000, a million per. And, and so mm-hmm. some podcasts and some YouTube shows and some digital kind of properties are astronomical in their reach, bigger than anything we've ever seen. But most of them are stuck mm-hmm. in this, in this no man's land of how to get your stuff mm-hmm. seen. So that's where Waypoint and other places right. like Waypoint are incredibly valuable because they bring together like content. Like the only reason you're going to go to Waypoint is if you like hunting, fishing, and outdoors. Like there's there's nothing else there. That's what's right. there. 
And so you have this niche, you, you, you curate this type of content to where you're getting the best of the best in one place. And, you know, generally that means that you're going to get a lot more people to look at it because the people that go there, well, they like that show and that show and that show. And Hey, all my favorite shows are here. This is great. I'm, I'm happy. This is where I'm going to stay. Um, or at least it's a stop on my, you know, you, we used to say it's a stop on your dial. Like, you know, you got three, nine and 12, and then you had a couple other channels. Mm-hmm. Um, but like ESPN was, you know, somewhere, I don't know, say it was low on the dial. Right. And, and so if your target channel or where your show was is channel 352 and ESPN is channel 11, Man, hardly anybody's going to get there. But if you were on one side or the other of ESPN right. or a really popular channel, then that was that's hugely valuable. Yeah. That's not that's not as big a deal mm-hmm. anymore. So it's more like what's the environment where you're putting your your content? That seems to be much more important these days yeah. than, than where you find it. Like I don't know, YouTube. Right. YouTube is a jump. No, I, I totally agree. It's. Yeah, big time. But it's really, it's a matter of curation. You know, it's like having these like-minded people and individuals who can curate and create content that is somewhat similar, I think is beneficial as well. You know, being able to, you know, touch base with Hunter, you know, from the Captain's Collective and, mm-hmm. and pick his brain a little bit and talk to you and other guys that have that are on this collective to really kind of be mutually beneficial for one another. And whenever someone asks me, they're like, Zach, what's Waypoint? Like, what are you, what is this that you're involved in? Um, I go think of it as like the outdoor channel, but it's like the outdoor version of Netflix, you know, where it's a one-stop shop, you know, and I really think that that's where, that's where this is all going, you know, for the future. Right. Yeah, it's, I hope, it's, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're learning every day and, and believe me, we get, we get our butts handed to us all the time by thinking that, that you know something or, or trying to be real rigid in your thought, like this is the way it's going to be. And next thing you know, mm-hmm. technology changes and whatever you were placing your, your, um, your, your bet on just goes away. Like you see it with social yeah. media things all the time. Like this one seems really big and then it just goes away or somebody buys it and kills it. Um, like vine or something like that. Like that was really right. big, great opportunity. And then one of the other companies sees it as a, as a, as a competition and they just, they just kill it. And so we're, right. we're real careful not to put too much stock in, in anything like, because it can just mm-hmm. go away. And so the idea is like, you know, how, how do you, I, I guess it's becoming more and more important to, to grow your audience on something that you can control because whether, you know, it might be Facebook, it might be Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, um, whatever. You, you, you just see that for whatever mm-hmm. reason, their business chan- their business model changes and, and you are not any mm-hmm. regard to that. So you, you might have, you know, you put out a post on Instagram and you get, you get a hundred thousand views and a hundred thousand likes and something changes with, with the way they deliver that and you get 40 likes and 40 views. And right. if that's what you're placing, you know, your entire business model is, is, is on that, that is completely yeah. out of your control. Uh, or at least it, it is for, with the knowledge that I have. <laughs> yeah, um, I, and I think, I think a lot of people get caught up in that. We're trying not to, 
Um, I mean, of course, we use all of those platforms. We have a whole bunch of Instagram accounts for Waypoint, and, and they're really, really important. But we've seen the reach go down significantly on those. And yeah. I don't know why. I guess they want us to pay money to, to get it back up. But um, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, uh, we're just real careful and, and try to stay real humble about what mm-hmm. we know and, 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 and really, it's really about what we don't know. And, and that certainly outweighs what we know right now, um, right. both about producing television shows as well as distribution. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I don't have any formal education in, in, um, in producing television shows and I certainly don't have any formal education in, in, in building a network, but I know right. that what we need as an outdoor producer does not exist. And mm-hmm. so we try to do the best job that we possibly can to create what our sponsors need and what we as outdoor producers need. And we try to keep the producer in mind because the yeah. other players are definitely not doing that. A producer is right. just a pawn. Like the, the idea for Waypoint is that, you know, this is really the underlying thing is I watched Bill Dance growing up, Jimmy Houston, mm-hmm. Hank Parker, Jerry McKinnis. I watched all those guys growing up. That's a big reason why I am a hunter and a fisherman today from watching those shows. As the ratings go down and production gets easier and easier, the opportunity for people like that to make a living educating people and entertaining them with outdoor content gets to be more and more difficult. Mm-hmm. Kids are playing more and more video games. They're not going fishing and hunting anymore. I mean, COVID kind of helped with that right. um, mm-hmm. a little bit to, to kind of restart the outdoor economy. But my, my thought is that if, if a guy like any, any producer, a guy like me can't make a living anymore, producing television shows, that's going to have a significant impact on conservation in, in the long run. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what we need to do is create a business model that allows outdoor producers to continue to do what they do so that they can entertain and, cons- and, and, and educate people about the importance of conservation. I mean, that's what it really boils down to is mm-hmm. that without good quality outdoor entertainment in the form of hunting and fishing shows, people eventually will just not really care that much about the outdoors. And I don't know. I don't want that. So that's really the underlying theme of Waypoint and why, why it's so important to, to, you know, me and and Rich and and Builder, uh, the three partners in Waypoint is because the conservation is the underlying theme of the whole. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because in so many ways, the, the reason behind along the keel and I, I kind of came up with this. I, it's funny. I was swimming with sea turtles with my dad and I'm like, you know what? The reason why I'm doing along the keel is because I'm teaching people about how to love the ocean. And that was, that was kind of the, the, the real light switch that went off in my head. So hearing you talk about the importance of conservation is kind of leading me into, you know, this next thought of, you know, really what you're doing is, you know, you're distributing outdoor content to people that wouldn't normally have the ability to, you know, you're acting as their guide in the outdoor world, just on their phone and maybe not in person, right? Because as a guide, as, as someone, whether you're a fishing guide, a, a 
going out and doing like a, you know, what I was doing, which is snorkeling and, and diving, you know, they're all somewhat similar, right? You're entertaining, but you're also educating, you know, and, and that really is, you know, what I found to be really important because here you go, you take this some, you know, one, a small kid that's never been on the water before and they might never have the opportunity ever again. But if you show them a great time and you teach them about the coral reef and the importance of reef safe sunscreen and, and why we should have coral reefs, because it's not just important in Hawaii, but it's important in Rhode Island, you know, and how everything kind of links together. You know, I had a conversation with the folks from gray fish tag research and, you know, the, the importance of the rooster fish down in Costa Rica directly impacts, you know, the striped bass fisheries here up in the Northeast, you know, and I think it's important to kind of show people that link and what Waypoint is doing. And a lot of all the content creators that are involved in Waypoint is just that, right? In their own, in their own light, right? So I guess in terms of conservation, you know, where do you see some of the pitfalls with where it's going right now and how Waypoint can kind of capitalize and, and help, you know, kind of change the tide because we're at such an interesting time now with COVID where more people, you know, like you said, it kind of jump started the outdoor economy. More people are getting outside because they're forced to, right? More people are consuming content, which quite possibly could be outdoor content um, because they're inside, they're working from home. You know, I don't know about you, but I saw my desktop listens go way high during the peak of COVID versus something on mobile. So I think that transition is happening. And, you know, when I work for CETO, the summers are insane. You know, this past summer was crazy because of all the, the boating activity. So where do you kind of see this going in terms of how it's going to be helping conservation and not negatively impacting it? Well, it's always good to get more people out, outdoors. I mean, that's the idea. But if, if, if the outdoor content isn't there from, from respected um, sources that can help to teach people proper etiquette, they can help, help to teach people like, uh, you know, the best way to release a fish so that you can continue to, to fish for them and that fish is going to survive, uh, why that's even important, um, all of those mm -hmm. things, you know, when you there's nothing better than, than, than taking somebody fishing, you know? So whether, whether you're taking someone fishing personally or you're a fishing guide, um, that's obviously the very best way you're giving someone a personal, um, experience with their own hands, with their own eyes. They see that that's great, but a fishing guide can only deal with one or two people at a time. And that was one of the reasons mm -hmm. why we started saltwater experience was to, take the, the things that we're teaching people one at a time and teach them to a lot of people at once. Like you have a much, much bigger audience. So we are very passionate about the fishing in the Florida Keys. We want to share that with others. We can do that one at a time, or we can do that 600,000 at a time. And, right. you know, hopefully that is going to um, get people a little bit more interested in Maybe they want to come down and catch a tarpon or a bonefish or a permit or something like that. Maybe, maybe they start to put together the connection that without clean water, those fish don't exist. And your, your, your dream of being able to catch a bonefish one day, you know, un unless you, you, you protect the areas that those fish live, you may not have them. Mm -hmm. And you know, it seems like, you know, it's a big, vast ocean and, and, and that would be impossible, but it's, it's not impossible. 
it, it can absolutely happen. And that story mm -hmm. can be told through television and it can be told in a way that people are entertained and educated at the same time. And, um, you know, with, with declining television ratings, that story gets told less and less. Now, I'm not saying that you can't tell that story on YouTube. You can. You can absolutely tell that story mm -hmm. on YouTube, and, and, and that would be a great thing. I wouldn't be opposed to that. But Waypoint, I think, um, can just bring together like-type shows so there's more and more of that on there. And not every show on there is going to be preaching conservation, but mm. I think that the conservation angle um, happens. It happens regardless because in order to do that activity you have to take care of the area and and hunter right. hunters and fishermen are responsible for the vast 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 majority of the conservation that happens in this country and some people don't Absolutely. realize that but there's a self-imposed tax on on hunting gear and fishing gear that goes right back mm -hmm. into the resource. That's a self-imposed tax. And, and there's billions of dollars that, that goes back into things like, um, you know, employing game wardens and boat ramps and access and law enforcement mm -hmm. and all these different things that have to happen in order to uh, maintain a healthy fishery or a healthy hunting uh, population of whatever that species is. And, and hunters and fishermen are the one that do that. So, without bringing new people into the sport, you know, there's a financial loss there that, mm -hmm. that, you know, the hunting license and the fishing license, and then the, the gear sales that all goes back into the, the resource. And without new people coming in, that doesn't happen anymore. And without the money, then, then you're, then you're in a situation like, like PETA, like what do they do? Yeah. They don't, I mean, I don't see anybody writing a check. Like, where's the money coming from them? They just complain about stuff. Hunters and fishermen actually right. get stuff done with money, with yeah. with actual dollars. That I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's what what happens. And so we have to have new people coming into the sport. And and I think just for the health and 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 well being of of our country and our people, people need to get outside. You don't have to go hunting and fishing to get outside, but but. I mean, that's a great activity and it's a, it's an activity yeah. that gets passed down from generation to generation a lot of times. And, you know, some people aren't, aren't, aren't fortunate enough to have, um, you know, somebody that passes that down to them. So it, 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 it's very important and crucial that, that we lower the boundaries of entry for people that have any sort of desire. And where do they get that desire? They get that desire from some sort of content that they either heard, watched, read, or something. There has to be some sort of motivation for somebody to say, you know what, fishing looks cool. You know what, boating looks cool. Hiking looks cool. Um, where did they get that? They got that from mm -hmm. some piece of content, generally. And, right. and that's what I hope that Waypoint can do, you know, is, is continue yeah. to offer people those little pieces of motivation to, to that, that the world is a really cool place to live in. And it's a lot cooler in your basement. It's a lot cooler <laughs> in video games. Um, yeah. you know, so, you know, get out there and, and, and try it. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And you know, it's, it's, uh, that's always something that I try and to instill in the, the people that I talk to or the podcast or the, the voice of along the keel and in my, my own voice is just like, you know, we, the, the hunters and the fishermen, 
are the conservationists here? You know, a lot of people like to paint a bad picture about it. And it's not, that's not the case. Theodore Roosevelt, the founder of the national park system was a hunter. He was a fisherman, right? These are the people that are giving back to our communities and that are paying for your boat ramp and paying for your trails to hike down. So, you know, in my opinion, I think all outdoor goods should have some sort of tax that goes back to um, the environment and not just, you know, hunting and fishing gear. So I'm not too well versed on the entire scope of that. So I don't want to speak too much to it, but um, I know there's not all outdoor equipment gets put back into, you know, conservation efforts. So, but um, you know, Tom, it's been a real pleasure being able to have you on the show. I know you have a podcast, a Tom Rowland podcast, which I've always listened to and I'm a big fan of because it kind of combines my two love of the gym and, uh, you know, the outdoors and fishing and boating. So, um, mind speaking of that real quick and letting people know where they can kind of tune in yeah. and find you learn so, more. Yeah. Tom Rowland podcast, uh, put out three episodes a week. The one on Tuesday is a how to Tuesday. It's some sort of, some sort of a way I either talk to one of my guests or just from my own experience, teach people how to do something, you know, usually it's relatively simple. Um, mm -hmm. some sort of tip or, or whatever that I've learned to make it a little bit easier or make it, make a little more sense or, or whatever. Um, things that I see people struggling with. That's how to Tuesday. Wednesday is a full length episode. Um, so that usually goes like an hour and a half to, to even two hours sometimes. Um, but most of them are, you know, somewhere in that hour to hour and a half. And I, I interview people um, of all walks of life, anybody I'm interested in. That's why it's called the Tom Roland podcast and not, not, uh, you know, I struggled with names and everything else. And I came down to, you know what, I want to talk about things that I'm interested in. I want to talk about, mm. I want to talk about whatever it is that I'm interested in. I don't want to be pigeonholed into any sort of like little, little spot. Like I, I want to be able to talk right. about uh, training, leadership, entrepreneurship, business, you know, fishing, conservation, hunting, backpacking, whatever I'm interested in. And, and we do, we talk about all those things. And I, I use Instagram a lot to find really interesting individuals that, that I just kind of wonder, like, how did they make that happen? How do you become a professional backpacker? How do you become a professional, like windsurfer? I don't know. I mean, it just right. seems out there like that you could do that and it's a fat and usually it's a fascinating story to to how mm -hmm. somebody did that or you know i might look at at the people that i that i grew up watching i mean i've had the opportunity to have bill dance on the show he's a legend in the in the fishing world probably anybody that knows anything about fishing has probably seen bill dance on tv at some time in their life and the guy's just a just a trailblazer and a mentor and a cool dude and so whether it's a, a icon of the fishing or hunting industry or it's, um, you know, an upper up and comer, um, I like to hear the stories and, and that's kind of the full length. And then on Friday we go through a, a physical Friday. That's some sort of a training kind of oriented thing. Lately we've been talking about the 10,000 pushup challenge, which is going on mm -hmm. right now. Lots of people, lots of fishermen. If you see people doing pushups on the boat, that's probably what's going on there. <laughs> They're uh, doing the 10,000 push-up challenge. And uh, so I'll put out little challenges like that and people can participate in them at their own pace or there'll be some sort of a, I don't know, certificate on this one. We do have a certificate uh, for the 10,000 push-up challenge. But we talk about, you know, things things oriented with with training and, 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 you know, living a healthy lifestyle so that you can go out there and do the things that you want to do, like hunting and fishing. Yeah. 
Love it. Well, Tom, hey, thanks for uh, being on the show. Um, you know, Instagram, Facebook, they can find you anywhere, right? Yep. Pretty easy to find. Saltwater Experience is, yeah. is the the big brand, saltwater underscore experience on Instagram. You can follow Into the Blue. You can follow uh, Sweetwater. It's another one of our productions. We've got a new YouTube show called Guides and Tides. You can follow that one. And then my personal Instagram is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D. Love to have you over there. That'd be great. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thank you. See you. Thank you guys for tuning into this episode of Along the Keel. It was great being able to chat with Tom. And one of the things that I took away, and uh, every time I talk to Tom, is man, it takes patience, right? This is one of the, these are one of those things that you know, if you want to be a guide and you want to be a good guide, uh, you gotta, you gotta kind of put in your time, you know. And and that's one of the things that I've always taken away from talking with Tom. And uh, maybe you took something away too. I hope you guys did. And if you want to learn more about Tom, you can head over and just Google his name. You'll find him. Trust me, you definitely will. Um, with that, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Again, five-star review would mean a lot on Apple and iTunes. And check us out on alongthekill.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. And like I said in the intro, we got some cool things coming. So I would definitely, definitely do it. And with that, I hope you guys work hard, do good, be incredible, and have an awesome day.